Welcome to the Mind on My Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. Hosted by RebelGrove.com publisher Neil McCrady and Pinnacle Trust financial guru Martin Palomo, the Mind on My Money podcast tackles the financial questions we're all thinking about. From paying for college to saving for retirement, from life insurance needs to 401ks and everything in between. The goal is to help you take the stress out of financial concerns and give you some tips to enjoy life while your mind is on your money. Now here are your hosts, Neil McCrady and Martin Paloma. Welcome to this special edition of Mind on the Money podcast presented by Pinnacle Trust. I'm Neil McCrady, Martin Paloma with me as well as always and uh, today back yet again to uh, give us the latest on uh, coronavirus, COVID-19, pan- pandemic, all that stuff is Alan Jones. He is the uh, chief of emergency medicine at UMMC. Uh, Martin, I think we can, since we did a regular show earlier in the week, we can probably skip some of the formalities and get right to the, yeah. uh, right, right to the show here today. I think that sounds uh, awesome. Alan, first of all, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for uh, your patience today. I had to uh, in, enlist the help of a 13-year-old to uh, get Zoom off my computer and back onto my computer, uh, and that took a few minutes, but uh, that is done, so thank you for your patience, and thanks for being here today. Yeah, of course. Happy to. Uh, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll start here. Martin and I uh, were having a conversation earlier in the week. I am in the middle of covering Ole Miss's return to, uh, I guess, back to campus for college football and other sports too, but it's basically football. Let's be real. And uh, it's happening in other places. Uh, Arkansas state today had uh, reported seven positive tests on their report date. Alabama had at least five though. Alabama is, is uh, not confirming those numbers, but the sourcing on that is really good. Uh, Ole Miss had uh, one student athlete on campus, one student athlete off campus and a uh, staff member test positive so far so not big numbers and most people said those were kind of expected numbers would you agree with that yes i would i think that's about accurate in that and not knowing the size you kind of need to know the denominator but generally if you test uh asymptomatic you're going to find about two percent positive rate so sounds about about what you would expect yeah it's about right i think old misses was if you do the math was not it was it was more like one percent but probably at alabama it might have been more than that but it doesn't matter we're we're, we're splitting what does there. that mean yeah let's 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 go there to what what does it what does it mean that's I, i've interpreted that to be hey this is a pretty good sign now you know you have a baseline of health on guys you and they're doing the antibody test those are not back yet i think that will tell us a little bit more when all the schools that are doing antibody tests get those results back but what is what does that mean in terms of uh being able to kind of get started as they as most of these programs have with with having some some very carefully orchestrated socially distanced workouts starting monday well um it's kind of a complicated complicated question and uh would take a a, could take a long time to answer but essentially in the people that you have tested uh with the nasal swab the diagnostic test what you can say is those people that have tested negative, at least in, for that moment in time, they're negative. Um, the thing that we're starting to learn about this uh, uh, virus that is becoming more clear through the process is, number one, it's got a really up, 
potentially a really long incubation period. So from the time that you contract the virus to the time that you become symptomatic can be up to 14 days. Um, so it's possible that someone that tests negative um, does not have the virus. It's also possible that they have the virus, but they're in a time period in incubation where we're not able to detect it because there's not enough of it in the nasal cavity to detect it. Um, I think that the latter uh, scenario is uncommon. Uh, so it's likely that if you test negative, you actually are not infected and you actually don't have it. But it doesn't mean that you won't become infected the next day and five days later become symptomatic with it or two weeks later become symptomatic. So it really just gives you some reassurance that at that moment in time, as you're bringing these people back, there's nobody that you need to, to potentially isolate away from everybody. We'll get off the sports part of this in a minute, but I'm just, I'm really fascinated by it. And I know a lot of people that listen will be as well. Is It's not surprising, right, that these student athletes, they're all, I mean, all generally 18 to 22. It's not surprising that the overwhelming majority, I mean, like 90 something percent, maybe even more than that, are asymptomatic, the ones that are positive. That's, that's not a surprise, correct? Not surprising at all. And uh, the other thing I would say is, just because the test is positive does not actually mean you have a live virus that is in your body. Uh, it, it may be that you had the virus pre prior and we're just still able to detect some of the nucleic acid. So this is an RNA virus and I don't want to get all scientific on you guys, but Essentially, it's, a, it's an RNA I to, virus. I went to ULM. There's no way you can throw any <laughs> academic stuff at me that I can't handle. So, I mean, you just got to do. The Harvard of Louisiana. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to Harvard on the Bayou, Alan. So, I mean, don't, don't, don't worry about it. jargon. Okay. I got it. I mean, I'm good. Let's, let's go with it then. Uh, it's an RNA virus. So, if I can just on, get some RNA on a swab and... I then put that in the machine that I use to detect the RNA. The way that machine works is it says, okay, I found some RNA. I'm going to make a copy of DNA that is a replica of that RNA. And then I'm going to amplify that DNA over a cycle of two, two, 20,000 times so that I can, if it's there, I can see a good signal that it's there. It doesn't mean that the RNA was alive inside a virus. It just means that I picked it up. So you could probably take, you know, at any given time, a package that was delivered by Amazon to somebody's doorstep and put swabs on it and, and amplify some um, coronavirus RNA from that. But it doesn't mean that you can catch the coronavirus from that RNA. So what we're finding is that we're able to have, a. oftentimes we see a positive test on somebody, but it's because they just have lingering viral particles that are in their nose that if they were, they had a, they had an illness, you know, two months ago and they just have still have some lingering virus up there that's not problematic or not infectious. So that's why pairing it with the antibody test is really important. Because if you have antibodies with a positive test, it probably means you're not infectious. 
Um, so that's just another component of that puzzle. Although we treat all those positive tests the same, just out of safety and precaution, it doesn't necessarily mean that they have it. Okay, so this is, I know there's a lot of people, I'm, I'm going to probably speak for the masses here, and I'm going to ask you a question that I'm sure you have heard a lot over the last few weeks as people get exhausted with this. And that is, okay, and, and again, this is, we're taking the politics completely out of this. No politics. I'm going to assume, the only assumption I'm going to make for this is that the virus cannot discriminate between a party and a protest, okay? Okay. I'm, I'm going to assume that to be a, a scientific fact, and if I'm wrong, well then, man, this is one hell of a smart virus. Um, <laughs> so let's assume that. If that's the case, obviously, over the course of the past couple of weeks, social distancing has gone out the window across the country. We all saw the pictures of the uh, Lake of the Ozarks in Missouri, where people were uh, very clearly not social distancing. We've seen pictures of the beaches um, kind of all over the Gulf Coast, where people are, uh, are, are not social distancing. And then here over the course of the last uh, week or so, uh, in, the, in the wake of uh, the death of, of George Floyd, We've seen social protest all over the country from coast to coast in pretty much every major city in the United States of America, most small towns as well, most all, all college towns. Uh, there's one in Oxford tonight. There's, there was one in Fayetteville, Arkansas last night. There was one in Columbia, Missouri. The list goes on and on and on. So my, and, and those are obviously people are not obeying social distancing requirements. I mean, yes, some people are wearing masks, but people are on top of one another. Is it, safe to assume that if in the next two or three weeks there's not some major outbreaks all over the country that this thing has at least a first wave of it has run its course um i would say that uh you may not see quote unquote major outbreaks meaning you may not see these uh situations like we saw in new york city and in New Orleans um, occur again. But what we should watch for is two things, uptick in number of positive cases and or uptick in number of deaths. So I think it's gonna be more important to just watch those trends. And if we see those trends increasing, what it means is that, um, and you don't have situations like New York or New Orleans that we saw early on, then what it means is that the virus is continuing to circulate, but enough people are have changed their social habits such that we are in a steady state of coexistence with the virus rather than in, a, in an environment of being overrun by the virus. And I think there's enough people now that are, you know, doing takeout and being really careful about what they touch and where they go and who they're around, um, spread in with the people that have said, you know, I really don't care. I'm going to the beach and I'm going to go to uh, this party at the hangout and I'm going to, you know, touch everybody and lick the counter and do whatever I want to do. Uh, there's enough of both of those groups such that we've kind of maybe developed a steady state and we're going to see these moments of increase and decrease. Um, to me, that's actually probably a good thing. It means that we've learned a way as society to, you know, I don't think I said this last time, but to coexist 
I mean, and I think for the foreseeable yeah. foreseeable future, that's what we're going to have to do. We're yeah. going to have to have, you know, people that people that are careful and people that aren't, and they're going to need to balance each other out in some way, and that will keep the viral activity at a manageable level. I've got a friend who is in the medical community. I, I don't want to identify him because I don't think he wants to be identified. It's in the South. Let's just leave it at that. He sends me a text today that says there are a lot of COVID positive patients in hospitals, but many are there for other reasons. It's the resumption of electives. So for example, a guy has a knee replacement, goes in and he's asymptomatic COVID positive. He gets his knee done anyway. If he's asymptomatic, some many are proceeding. Is that kind of thing changing some numbers as well? People, hey, you know, they're resuming their chemotherapy treatment or they're resuming, uh, they're getting that colonoscopy that they put off or they're getting the uh, a cosmetic surgery that had been put off for whatever the case may be, getting getting a, a knee scoped in this case, getting uh, getting something worked on that, that got a shoulder replacement or whatever that got put off because of the of the pandemic that the hospitals are sort of, for lack of a better word, reopening to those kind of people. Are you seeing those kinds of, of, of not spikes, but those kinds of increases in numbers as well? So we're seeing, um, we definitely are seeing uh increase in our number of people who are coming back for, you know, elective procedures, elective or, you know, semi-urgent or urgent, you know, things that were put off before. Uh, those, are, those are coming back, probably not to the same degree as we had before, but beginning down that route. We're not seeing a, a huge number of uh, COVID positive that is, um, that is unexpected. In other words, we're seeing probably the same percentage of people that you described in some of these football cohorts of if we're testing, you know, 200 asymptomatic people that are coming in to have procedures, we're finding two to four positives, you know, so a one to 2% positive rate. And, um, and those people, if it's necessary, are getting put in the hospital and having the procedure. But if it's delayable, we're delaying them. Uh, I don't think hospitals are full of incidentally COVID-positive patients. I think the one the hospitals that I know of, and we track this pretty closely, the hospitals that have COVID-positive, they're in the hospital because they're COVID-positive. That's the reason for the addition. Where do we stand on? I, what, I guess I'm, I'm curious if you had to predict, and this is, this is a ridiculous question, but I'll ask it anyway. If, if, if I told you that, hey, uh, let's just say all, all 14 SEC teams have 100 players, just for the sake of an easy number, so that's 1,400 people. How many of those people, when they do the immunity test, would, would, you, would you guess, if you were trying to compete for the grand prize, how many people would you guess out of that 1,400 had, had immunities or antibodies for uh, for coronavirus i would say um probably fifty two between fifty and seventy it's going to be about four percent okay um that is generally what we're seeing in really well done cohort studies of uh of patients um you know, with good statistical sampling, it's going to be on the order of around 4%, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes, you know, 2 
really not anywhere near what some of these poorly done studies that initially came out, like out of California, where they said, oh, 40% had antibodies. And I think one in New York said, you know, 18% had antibodies. That's not, that's not, I don't think we're going to see that emerge, but you'll see some, but it's so what just does not. That, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's, it's not going to be what everybody hoped it would be is that, you know, we do antibody tests and, you know, 40% of the population is going to have antibodies. So what does that mean? The number you just used, what does that mean as it pertains to quote herd immunity? Uh, it means that um, in order to achieve herd immunity at that degree of an infection rate, you know, let's say, let's say best case scenario that that virus started circulating in, you know, late January in the U.S. We could even say early January. So it's been in circulation in the U.S. for five months now, um, and we're seeing a four percent positive rate we're probably looking at five years or more to get to herd immunity because that requires 70% of the population at, at a minimum, 70% of the population to be immune. And that is assuming that the immunity is lifelong. So we don't even know that, you know, we don't, it, one of the bad things about this virus is that it attaches to the upper respiratory tract and, um, it, it, uh, it is basically the same virus that causes the common cold, and we don't have a vaccine to the common cold. And the reason is because it's really hard to find a target that results in immunity that is lasting. You can get immunity that is temporary, so two months, three months, but to have lasting immunity, you have to have a target on that virus that doesn't change and doesn't... Um, does it wane over time? Um, so I don't even know if we're going to get herd immunity, quote unquote, from 70% of the population getting it, because it may be that after six months, those antibodies have substantially declined and you're, you're susceptible again to, you know, to this virus. Um, so that, that's the kind of quandary that we're in right now. Of when, if and when we get there, I really, my gut tells me that we're just kind of in this for the long haul. And like I said, it's going to become a endemic or baseline virus in our population, uh, similar to the flu, um, where we go through a seasonality of it. And we may not, we may eventually get a vaccine, but it's going to be something we're going to have to get, you know, yearly or, or every basis. six months, something yeah. like that. I have, I have a so question may, about that too, because one can, of the can, things that, can you hold, hold that one, Mark? I'll forget this. We're right here on this. I'm curious. Sure, so, sure. so what does that mean in terms of, cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of people in, in, in college athletics that are deeply concerned about a second wave major league baseball's owners are trying to do a really short season because they want to make sure, Hey, if we're going to do this, we want to make sure that we, we have the playoffs because that's where all of the TV money is. So if we're going to do this and, minimize our losses let's get the season let's get the postseason and the world series in before a second wave and then there are people dr jones that come back and say well I mean, we don't know that there's going to be a second wave or what a second wave would look like or how severe it would be what what do you as of today june the 4th uh what do you think about a second wave um you know i i think that this is going to be so we've we've shown at least in most areas it's not going to be a peak and drop 
Um, we were able with the with the preventive measures that were put into place with social distancing, shelter at home, we were able to make it instead of a peak, kind of like a, an undulation, right? Just a, a, a hill rather than a mountain. Right. Um, and so I think what we're going to, I think what we're going to see over this is kind of a, um, peaks and valleys uh, that look more like a sine wave um, than they look like, uh, you know, mountains uh, with large um, increases and drops. Now, superimposed on that sine wave may be moments in certain communities of significant rises. If you have super spreading events, which are typically events of, um, you know, large numbers of people in an enclosed environment with intense amounts of interaction, uh, similar to what we've seen with in the news with funerals and, and weddings and, you know, those types of things. But um, I don't think that we're going to have a quote unquote second wave of uh, a nationwide massive increase uh, I don't think we're going to see, you know, really significant declines in the activity um, to to any level that's gone. I think we're just going to, we're going to, like I said, learn to coexist with it. And we're just going to have this baseline level of it. And there's going to be periods where it's going to get better and periods where it's going to get worse. But it's not going to be so substantial that we're all totally overrun with it. So. One of the things we've been hearing, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna put the business spin on it a little bit too, because one of the things, and I've got I guess a comment and a question. Uh, one of the comments from we've been talking to our portfolio managers and our guys, um, you know, like in New York that are running money, and you know, I keep just asking the, I keep asking the question to the economists. You know, we were talking about a return to normal, and a lot of their comments are, you know, strong consumer, strong economy. Um, you know, pre-virus, you know, the economy is just waiting for a vaccine to get back to full economy. I mean, to full freight. And I just kind of, you know, some of the comments you said, if, if we have to coexist, if we're coexisting, then, and there is no quote unquote vaccine, that's going to permanently eradicate this thing. It's going to be more like flu. Then, then I guess uh, us learning to coexist is going to mean, do you think there's probably, you know, a demand for things like masks where you know we're wearing masks a lot more regularly than than you know we ever have or it's a constant part of our you know our daily routine um you know and fly i guess if you're flying if you're you know in a in a group of people is 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 the masks going to be the best way to quote unquote coexist when we're out with mass population yeah i think masks is one component of it uh, for sure. Um, what we do know about masks is while it's not the, you know, it's not the panacea of uh, prevention, right. it does, it does help. Um, you know, it, it prevents us, it, a couple things. Number one, it reminds us there's a problem. Number two, it prevents the, um, because this, this particular virus, um, unlike MERS and, and the original SARS, which really seem to attach mostly to the lower respiratory tract. This particular one in its initial phases uh, attaches to the upper respiratory tract. And so there are certain situations that 
in social settings where you do where they have been able to clearly document super spreading events and a lot of them have been around um events of someone singing or um speaking uh in in closed uh settings and that's because there's a lot of uh virus in the upper respiratory tract around the airway and just simply the the loud noise and the forceful uh, expiration of air is what has started the spread. Mm. And so um, masks we know can decrease that. Uh, if we can, can get people on board with, you know, wearing masks, being just sensitive to what their environment is. So, you know, if you go to the grocery store, take a, take a moment to wipe off the cart before you, you know, take it in. Yep. When you're done, put some hand sanitizer on your hands. You know, when you get home, after you put everything up, you know, wipe your whatever, your counters down. Just doing some things that are not normally part of what we do. All those things, if we could get everybody on board with doing them, or, or let's just say 70% of the population on board with doing them, that would help a lot with the spread, with the environmental spread social distancing, you know, limiting the amount of large group um, exposure that you have, uh, you know, instead of going to dinner parties of 20 people, let's think about having, you know, more intimate events with close friends and we do it in a way that we stay away from each other, but we can still visit. I think if, if our social, if our previous social norms become new social norms, that's the way I think we, we learn to coexist. And I, I'm just convinced that it's not going away and we've got to learn to adapt to an environment that we can keep it at a level that, you know, we can, we can continue to live. Um, it's just a new way of living. You know, I think the handshake is dead forever. That kind of thing. I'm kind of glad handshakes are creepy. <laughs> if you think about handshakes, they're creepy. And also, this way, because some people just don't know how to shake hands, and they'll do that kind of fish Dead hand fish. thing. Yep. And man, yeah. I can't. I judge them for the rest of time. I, I yeah. never get over it. And so <laughs> now I think I'll give that person more of a chance. And I also won't have to deal with the guy that tries to break your hand. Yeah, you know the guy yeah, exactly. that, yeah. that wants to yeah. break your hand off yeah. of your wrist for no particular reason, just and other yeah. than to show, hey, I'm a very strong person. I don't have to deal with that. I'm kind of if if that's the one thing that we lose from this, I'm I'm good. I don't know, man. I, I guess I take the I take the opposite side of you, Neil, on on this one because, like, I don't know, man. For me, and I don't know if it's like the business setting too, but also it's, it's. I think it was just like my dad. Maybe it's my dad coming out of me that was always like, you know, you give a good handshake, and I mean, I don't know. Maybe we do adopt to the Japanese bowing as the form of respect uh, to you, each you other. You to make the you to make the compelling argument, Martin. That's going to help you. That's going to help me. It's going to help you get over the missing the handshake. All right, go for it, man. I'm all in. Kind of hard to do now because we're everybody's super cleanly. But if you can go back in time and in your mind's eye, picture like a restroom. How many men did you see go in and out of a restroom, whether it was to do one or the other, and not wash their hands? Yeah. I mean, Avogadro's I mean, number. 
you know, I don't know, it's dude. A, I'm, it's a really bad number. So you think about where that hand was and what it was around, and now it's pressing against your hand? Nah, I'm good. I'm cool. And then I'm going to go eat a sandwich. We're going we're gonna to break bread together, and I'm going to ingest <laughs> I think the Alan, feces. I think Alan's exactly right. Urine, I, I semen. Think, yeah, Alan's exactly right. We will always, I mean, there will never be a time that I do not thoroughly wash my hands before I eat something. There will never be a time that I don't get off of a of a a, a, a a bus, a plane, anything, and go wash my immediately wash my hands. That will be the first thing on my mind. I will carry hand sanitizer everywhere I go, probably for the rest of my life. There's no doubt about that. That is that is that has changed our. Behavior. I think if we could get everybody on board with those types of things, you know, or at least, you know, if you want to use the 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 concept of the. Uh, herd immunity we get 70 percent of the population on board with it it's man you know it's containable you're still going to have people get sick yeah you're still going to have people in the hospital yeah you know um but it's going to be it's going to be manageable right and it's going to allow it's going to allow society to uh the economy to get back up to speed some and, and allow people to be out and about and doing things um in, in a way that you know, everybody's kind of saying now, well, how are we going to do this? I mean, really, that's the only way forward. I mean, this whole, like, we're going to have a vaccine by September. We're not going to have a vaccine by September. I mean, okay. Not. Here's my other question that comes up a lot. And I know you hear this a lot, too. As the heat gets here and starting to warm up, I think the temperatures in the 90s this weekend. And, and so it's June in the south. What's the heat going to do uh, to this virus? And then in, in terms of the virus living on surfaces, how, how much does the surfaces being hot as opposed to the surfaces being cool change the, the longevity of the, of the virus? Yeah, that's a good point. A good, good question. I mean, certainly this is not a super hardy virus, meaning that it, it's, not, um, it's not like a, one of these viruses like hepatitis that can exist on a on an inanimate surface for you know 48 hours and and still infect somebody um so it's it's not a super hardy virus and the heat will have some effect the heat is not gonna kill it per se but if you if it's if this virus is in direct sunlight um for you know probably a couple two hours two three hours it's gonna it's gonna be non-infectious uh, as opposed to being in a indoor you know moist uh, not moist but somewhat humid uh, environment you know temperature controlled environment um, it's, it's going to last longer than that uh, you know maybe even 24 48 hours in those types of settings the other thing about heat is the good thing about it is people want to be outside, yeah. right? For yeah. the most part, it's particularly in the South. So we do know that the outside environment is much less conducive to um, the virus being spread because of the ambient air and the movement of ambient air. And, you know, people tend to be more isolated when they're outside, not necessarily in large groups. So uh, probably both of those th two things combined will help. And you won't know exactly what contributes to what, but I think it'll, I think you'll, that's why we see some of the, the activity with the flu, you know, we have a flu season per se is for those very reasons. 
So the governor of Texas today announced that for sporting events, 50% capacity is allowed. Uh, that's significant for Ole Miss, of course. Ole Miss is scheduled to open its season at Baylor September the 6th, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't know what's going to happen between now and September, and all that could change. But when I say that to you, does that does that spook you a little, the, the, the thought of, in this case, 36,000 people in NRG Stadium in Houston? Or do you think it's, it's out? they'll probably open the roof, it'll be outdoors, it'll be hot as hell in Houston in September, and it'll be okay? Um, well, if I told you it didn't spook me a little, I'd be lying. Um, you know, truth of matter is we don't know. We, we, we don't know is it going to be okay or not. Will there be some virus spread among those 36,000 people? Yes. Um, now, will they leave and the ones that have gotten infected uh, go immediately spread it to other people? No. Uh, will we hope that those people that have gotten infected when they go back to their environment are careful and they are one of these people that wears masks and puts on hand sanitizer and, you know, um, social distances and to the best they can. We do hope that because that's what's going to help the downstream effects of it. But certainly any public health official who says, yeah, I think, I think a gathering of 36,000 people in September is not going to be a problem at all. They, they're, you shouldn't listen to them because it, it is going to be a problem. It's just a matter of how big of a problem is it going to be and what's the downstream consequence is going to be. I would have, I would be much more comfortable with the concept of a 20% capacity. Um, you know, so let's stage back into it. I mean, there's no scientific evidence behind it, but, you know, it just seems like, slow learn increase learn how do we get back to where we want to be you know we're going to learn through every cycle of this a better way to do it and about how the virus is going to spread and what we're going to see so it would seem to me like going slower initially for these large-scale events is going to be a better strategy because the worst thing that's going to happen is you bring 36,000 people in there and after that, 10,000 of them come down with the virus, and then you kind of shut everything down again. You know what I mean? Yeah, because people um, go to football games and they act like idiots because they're they're, yeah. sc they're screaming and, uh, you know, that's right, kill the quarterback right. or or play that quarterback or that quarterback's awesome or whatever. And, and people get emotional and they sing fight songs and they yell and scream. And uh, yep. I, I know that these schools probably and organizations would probably love to, to tell all 36,000 people to wear a mask. Right. That's not, that's not policeable inside of yeah, the state. Not, you know, so not. You, you can ask people to do it. You can even demand people to do it, but people are going to take their mask on and off, on and off, on and off over the course of a game. And, and asking a security staff to enforce that is insane. I mean, it's, 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 it's not going to happen. So, it, we, it's kind of what I'm hearing from you is is it's it's ironic because it sort of matches a lot of the, uh, the the social conversation that we're having uh, in the in the wake of of all of the protests that are out there, which is we're all we all have to take care of each other is essentially what I'm hearing from you. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, I think you know when I think about like say the mask at a football game, 
Is it absolutely necessary for 100% of those people to wear masks? No, it's not. Uh, we really need the majority of them to wear it for it to be, you know, to have some effect that we're trying to make it have. But if you got drunk guys that, you know, you'd have to call the police in for not wearing a mask, it's kind of like, you know, drinking and driving. I mean, 99% of people you know, they're not going to drink and drive uh, when they're, they're not going to drink to intoxication and then go say, this is a great idea. I'm just going to go get in a car and drive. Uh, and because of that, while there are deaths every year, there are nowhere near as many deaths every year as there could be if there weren't laws, right? Sure. Uh, yep. Associated with drinking and driving. So it's the same kind of thing. You're going to have people like me, and you two and, and, you know, Stacy and various other people who are going to say, yeah, I'm wearing a mask. You know, I'm not an idiot. I'm not, I'm not going in here and trying to give somebody else something. It's not about protecting me. It's about protecting everybody else. And I'm not saying people that don't wear a mask aren't idiots, but, you know, I don't want to go in there and be the one guy, you know, that everybody's looking at. Um, I mean, you choose not to wear a mask, you choose not to wear a mask. Sure. I mean, you know, we can't do anything about that. So I don't think it should be policed. I think it should be a, let's contribute to society. And we know some people aren't going to do it. And okay, if we get most people to do it, we're in good shape, you know? I mean, I guess kind of the same rules apply to contraceptives, right? I mean, you want to yeah. play with fire, just be ready for the, for the consequences, you know? And one of the things that if we can figure out how to coexist, because Having a second economic shutdown, I mean, we kind of saw what happened with the first one and, you know, the amount of unemployment significantly has, has, has gone, you know, through the roof. Um, you know, the feds, the government have really stepped in to try to prop that up, but that's also not sustainable long-term. And, and I mean, I think that everyone kind of realizes that too. And the thing, I mean, my biggest fear honestly was, uh, was that there would be another economic shutdown. And because if there is, I mean, I don't know, some of it is, I don't know that you're going to have, there's going to be, I think there's going to be a, a lot more damage than, than we can, than we're even prepared for. Um, you know, there's, and I know there's a lot of mental health issues we haven't even really discussed, um, you know, on the podcast as we, as we, as we talk about some of the effects from, from people losing their jobs. Cause that was one of the things I read. It was a really, it was a really good, it was a well-written article. And of course I can't, I, I'll probably, I can put it in the show notes. Um, but it was, it was essentially talking about, you know, when you lose your job, that's a massive, uh, you know, that's a, that's a massive event to your mental health as well, especially if it was an unexpected lost job. So now you've got stress of worrying about the house, uh, you know, putting food on the table, all those things. Well, just because, you know, 38 million people lose the lose jobs at the same time. It doesn't like, it's not like, Oh yeah, we're kind of all in the same boat together. No, it just, it means that 38 million people are, are really suffering. Um, and, and I mean, I think that, you know, I don't, I'm not disagreeing that it was the, it was the right thing to do. I just know there's also consequences for, you know, for those type of things too. And I just, I got real nervous about, you know, how do we move forward if there's, because one of the things we're hearing from our PMs too is, Hey, you know, economy can't be in full freight until we've got a vaccine. And it's like, I keep hearing the, we need the vaccine. We need the vaccine. And I keep asking, you know, and I just ask my friends, Hey, when this vaccine comes out, are you getting it? 
and man, most of them are like, hell no, I'm not getting a vaccine. I'm like, okay. I mean, I get my flu shot every year and I'm just asking, Hey, are you, are you going to get the vaccine? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, and probably a lot of it is political as well, but it seems to be a lot of apprehension about a vaccine also. Um, so I don't know, man. I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged that you said co- we can coexist with this thing because if it's like an all or nothing where you either have to have the vaccine or we can't return to, you know, a normal life, it's like, man, that's, that's not a good, that doesn't set up for a very good ending. That's going to be, yeah. that's going to hurt really bad. Yeah. I mean, clearly the vaccine issue, I mean, predated all this, you know, you've got, you got the anti-vax people and you got the people who are on board with it. And, you know, you're always going to have that. And I know there's all these conspiracy theories about vaccines or, you know, they're implanting stuff in us (laughs) so they can track us and control us. 5G networks and George Soros and Bill Gates. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm the naive one, and Dude, you know, maybe we are. Yeah, we are. Maybe we are. You know, the, 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 maybe that stuff is true. I mean, you're you're just going to have people that are going to say, "Yeah, I'm going to get it," and you're going to have some that just like the flu vaccine. And you know what? I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, I don't think that this virus is going to be like a smallpox or polio um, because it's not the same type of virus because it's not um, the same paradigm of infection uh, that we're going to have a vaccination that's going to be a a series of vaccines that we're going to take one time. It's going to end up being a a seasonal thing. And you're going to have some people that are going to not want to get it. And that's okay. You know what? If they take their chance and they get it, yeah. And they're one of these 20 somethings in my hospital suffocating to death on their own secretions. That, that was the choice that they made, you know, I mean, it's just the way it is. And that's the society we live in, you, you know, freedom of your ability to choose those types of things. I'm personally okay with that. Uh, as long as we continue as a society to generally agree that there are some things that are going to have to be different, you know, it's going to be okay for, somebody put their hand out to shake my hand i say look i don't shake hands and you know it's going to be okay if i want to wear a mask people don't look at me wrong you know like i'm crazy it's going to be okay that if i carry a bottle of hand sanitizer and you know pour it on my head after i talk to somebody that somebody doesn't laugh at you know what i mean i mean i, sure, dude, I, mean, I might to... i might laugh a little bit if you poured sanitizer on your head so. yeah well you know i'm, I'm just saying tolerant no, absolutely we're got to be a little more tolerant absolutely that's um, the word I, I, i've been saying that for a while that the, these yeah. people that, that get worked up about the people that wear a mask i'm like man if listen there, there is something to be said just for the the there's a placebo effect a little bit i think of if you know it's I always put things in sports terms, right? I mean, if, if, if you think that you're hitting the baseball because you tap your left foot three times before every pitch, then you probably are hitting a baseball because you're tapping your left foot three times before every yeah. pitch. I mean, I mean, if, if, if that mask makes you feel safer and more secure and calmer then for your overall health, the mask might not be help preventing you from getting coronavirus, but it's probably helping other elements other elements of your health if if you can feel a noticeable difference in your just calmness between wearing a mask and not wearing a mask then it is doing something for you yeah and you know i'm i'm like you know i know there's a lot of people don't want to wear a mask oh that's fine i don't you know it doesn't bother me at all you know i'm wearing a mask because 
you know, not because I think I'm protecting myself, but because I think I'm contributing to protection of society, right? I mean, that's really the reason that I wear a mask. It's out of respect for others so that they're not uncomfortable around me because I don't have a mask on. And because if it, if what I can do to contribute to control the spread of this is wear a mask, man, that's really not that big a deal, you know, in my mind. So that, you know, but if there's somebody who thinks it's a violation of their rights or they can't breathe or whatever, okay, that's fine. I mean, I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to confront you because you don't have a mask on. Um, you know, I'm going to be tolerant of that, but I think that people just need to think about what is the reason that we're doing this, not to, you know, infringe on anybody individually, but for a society so we can coexist in a way that allows us to return to some baseline level of activity that we all kind of like. You know, we okay. all like that freedom of being able to do these types of things. Sure. And that's what we want to try to get back to. All right, Alan, I, along those lines, it certainly appears, and I'm thrilled because I've seen the mental health of young people up close and personal. It, it certainly appears that kids are getting back to it. Um, soccer and uh, baseball and cheer and weightlifting and all that stuff. And that means that in August, kids are going to go back to schools. And that means that, which in many ways, for a lot, especially for a lot of, of, of uh, underprivileged kids, that means they get a couple of square meals a day again. Uh, but it means they're going to be back on buses. And uh, as much as I, I want to have faith in, in uh, the collective 10-year-olds out there, I, I, I dare say that they're going to exchange some germs at school the way they always have. This is a, a topic that has been a, a, a different people have said different things. I'm curious how... Obviously, this, this, this virus is not hurting 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old young people. How much, when they get it, are the people around them, the older people in their lives, at risk of, of them spreading it to them? Um, just the same, as, the same as if, you know, a non-young person got it. I mean, you know, there's, there's a risk. Um, I think that the level of uh, risk associated with some of the activities that particularly kids do is kind of a graded level of risk, you know? So if it's a individual sports lesson, really, really low risk, you know, one-on-one -on -one with the coach, really, really low risk. If it's an organized team sport uh, and, you know, it's a captive group of kids with responsible parents who aren't going to send their kids when they're sick or they've been around somebody sick, really, really low risk. Uh, and, and, you know, you're not doing, contact with the individual kids if it's more of like an intra-squad scrimmage where maybe there's some contact but it's still that same captive group of kids it's probably medium risk but when you start to get into the you know between team scrimmages with contact uh with local teams probably getting a little riskier and the thing that makes me nervous with kids sports is kind of the the traveling teams who are going to go to these, let's say, for example, baseball, you know, cause that's yeah. big right now yep. uh, in season, you know, you're going to go to a, a, a youth baseball tournament where you got 157 teams from four different States in the same tournament. 
and everybody's traveled to it and it's about to you know it's about to occur and over the course of two days well that's that is not a low risk situation because you got people coming from different places that you don't know that are going to be intercommingled and you're inevitably going to have infected people there so i think it's all about you know what what is what is a parent's risk tolerance for their kid um you know across that spectrum and uh with the knowledge that it's not just the kid is going to become the parent. you know we know that this thing spreads really rapidly within within uh families and family environments so kid gets it mom and dad are going to get it siblings are going to get it if grandma and grandpa live in the live in the house uh or next door they're going to get it um so you just got to kind of look and you know those multi-generational houses are really difficult because it ends up being the grandparent of the family that is the one that bears the brunt of it because they're the ones that, that are at risk for the worst outcome so I think it's just a personal decision among families. You know, where's our risk tolerance with this stuff? I mean, our kids started going back to um, soccer practice this week. Uh, they, um, they're in an environment where the coaches are keeping the kids distance. They're doing a lot of drills and things that are non-contact. So I think it's a pretty low-risk situation. It's good for their mental health. Um, you know, we'll just kind of take it stepwise like that. I probably will let, would let them scrimmage, particularly intra-squad scrimmage. I think that's okay. Um, we'd probably have to think a little harder about the, you know, travel and tournaments and those types of things. But, but I think it's a, you know, it's a risk to bring it back to those at-risk um, people. And, you know, even the parents, some of the parents might be on immunosuppressants or whatever, you know, they're, they're going to be at risk. So, it's all, where's my risk tolerance in this, you know? Um, I mean, I think that's what every individual has to kind of figure out. Where, where do they align in risk tolerance and what, um, how are they going to incorporate that into their, what they are willing to do within the environment? I've kind of enjoyed, you know, in some ways, the, the social distancing aspect of this because it's, it's given me and my family more time to, do things that we would have never done. We've had, you know, some months of doing things that is time that we would not have had without this. So, you know, we're trying to view, okay, what's been the positives about it? Yeah, it's kind of, we want to go to our fa our favorite restaurants and sit down and have some chips and salsa and whatever, you know, some of the things we like to do before. But if that's what I've got to give up for a period of time so that I'm contributing to, you know, allowing economy and our society to get back to some semblance of, uh, of, a, of a baseline activity. That's okay. It's not going to last forever. You know, it, it does feel emotionally and mentally like a marathon with a, a finish line that's a mirage. But, you know, it's not. There is a finish line somewhere. We just, I'm not sure we've seen it quite yet. So do you, I mean, do you feel like there's, do you feel like there's a large risk for states, you know, opening back up and, and, you know, and, and kind of life and business being like 
like normal. Um, and I mean, and I, and I don't mean that in any politically charged way whatsoever, but you have, you know, you've got some states that have still said, Hey, we're, um, we're staying shut down and, you know, they have even extended out into mid June and, you know, end of June. Um, is, is that overkill or are they onto something or? Yeah, I would say, yes, there's a risk. Absolutely. There's a risk. Um, but I'm convinced that continuing to keep things shut down is not a sustainable option for our society, our economy, our world. We have to learn a safe way. And I keep saying it over and over again because it's just the way it's going to have to be. We have to learn a safe way to coexist. And that coexistence can't be keeping things closed indefinitely with no end in sight because that's going to create a different type of havoc um, that is the same at you know is going to have similar consequences as the virus has right i mean if we keep things shut down and you lose your health insurance and you can't get your heart failure medication and you have a heart failure exacerbation and you get hospitalized and die because you didn't have your heart failure medication well was that better than getting coronavirus I mean, you know, yep. it's a it's a really complicated, it's a really gets to be a really complicated um, conversation real fast. That's why I think we just we gotta learn a safe way to reintegrate. And the answer is not keeping it shut down. The answer is continuing to preach the basic things that we know we know help. We know they help. You know, we know hand hygiene. We know social distancing. We know masks. We know trying to limit large gatherings. We know being super careful around those that are that are uh, environmental risks for uh, having bad outcomes associated with the virus. We know those things will help. So we got to keep preaching those things. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a lot of information, and I know that the people that are listening to it are are, are really interested in it. So thanks again so much. Yeah, no problem. And I think much more uplifting than the last time I was on. So yeah, the last hopefully, time, the last time you were on, I was injecting cyanide straight into my vein. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it wouldn't I, even I, work. I, I mean, I kind of was too. But I think that you know, it just goes to show you, like, what was that a month ago a or month six ago. weeks ago? Yeah. I mean, you know, every we we just every day we're learning so much more about this virus, and we're just having new insight and new um you know aha moments about you know what what certain things mean and i think in another month you know i'm i'm optimistic i mean i i you know i'm tired just like everybody is um of dealing with it but i think eventually it's just going to become our new baseline and we're going to coexist with it and we're going to know people who get sick and we're going to know people who unfortunately die and we're going to know people who get better and it's it's no different than the flu or you know one of these other things that we deal with it's just it's just going to become what we deal with this is crappy journalism to end an interview and then resume it but i'm, no, I'm, I'm i have one more question fascinated too. <laughs> I, I, i'm fascinated here with something you just said so you know you, you've talked about this we've, we've kept you for almost an hour now and you were on for 30 minutes while i was trying to fix zoom so you've you've 
we, we probably owe you benefits at this point. But yeah, well, <laughs> I'll send chips and salsa to your house. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll build. I'll send Stacy a bill. Don't worry. Yes, yes. Do that. He Do can't. That. He's <laughs> muted, so he can't. He can't protest. <laughs> you know, you were talking about like dealing with this. Like, not we're not comparing it to the flu, but you know, we're, we're seasonal and that kind of thing. So obviously, you know, if 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 I go to the doctor and I've got the flu. I, they they swab me for strep and they swab me for flu and they say you've got the flu. They give me a shot and they give me some steroid and they give me a Z pack and they might give me the Tamiflu if they caught it early enough. Are we any closer to some sort of a a standardized treatment, treatment for this? If you hey you you tested, we think we caught it pretty early. Here's we're going to give you this stuff just to knock it out. I think we've got a lot of good promising. Uh, a lot of good promising uh, therapies that are presently either in the middle of or towards the end of, um, of trials. Uh, you know, I know that that uh, hydroxychloroquine has been real politicized and polarized, but you know, the truth of the matter is, is that we don't know about that one yet. I mean, there was a big, you know, the news first was all over it as being this great wonder drug. And then, and then it, this study came out in the Lancet that said it didn't do any good. Now that study's been retracted yes, because it looks day. like the data might have been fabricated. <laughs> and so, you know, that that one has potential. Um, there is, uh, you know, the Redemsevere, which is uh, an antiviral that has been shown, at least in hospitalized patients, to have some benefit in shortening uh the duration of illness and so i think that one's got a lot of benefit we're looking at uh some medications uh that are called angiotensin receptor blockers which are used for high blood pressure that um seem to attach at the same receptor where coronavirus and i think that one you know, oral medication really pretty safe that's got a lot of potential so i think we're going to start seeing some of these things emerge uh pretty soon that we're going to, you know, we learn every day a little bit more about how to treat the virus and how to care for it. I think we're going to see some stuff that's going to be, yeah, you're going to go to your doctor and if they catch it early enough, they're going to put you on this, that, and the other, and it's going to help. I do think that that's coming. Uh, and we, we're getting a lot of hospital-based therapies, monoclonal antibodies, convalescent serum, um, you know, uh, cytokine, cytokine uh, suppressant drugs, a lot of things that will help even sick people once they get in the hospital to recover. So uh, one positive out of all this is we've been able to ramp up a lot of those things that normally would take years and years and years and years to get through the bureaucracy. Um, we've been able to fast track a lot of that. So awesome. I, I think there's a lot of promise from that, from that perspective. Well, that's good. That'll, that'll build confidence too. And I, I've got one more question and I, and I promise you I'll, I'll stop asking. And, it, and it, it's going back to masks. I wanted to ask. Um, so like for folks who struggle with, you know, like for me and I still haven't figured it out either. Like every time I wear my mask, my glasses fog up and I just take my glasses off and I just do my best to, you know, not run into people in the grocery store with my grocery cart. But uh, is it, are there masks that are better for others with people who like struggle to, to breathe in them? Are there, you know, are there, do you have any tips or tricks that you could share with us that really suck at 
yeah. using the mask. Well, I well. can give you, I can give you, uh, I can give you a, a couple of tricks, tips. One is particularly the glasses thing. Um, and surgeon been, surgeons have been doing this for years. You know, people that wear masks frequently try a little bit of, uh, uh, athletic tape or silk tape or some kind of less, less, uh, abrasive tape when it's pulled off on the bridge of your nose over the bridge part of the mask mm -hmm. that helps with the condensation that comes up over the glasses sweet um you know some of some of masks is just trial and error particularly cloth masks um you know so you know just order i mean they're they're not they're not expensive have or you might know people who make them just you know get several different ones and just try several different ones to find which one is kind of the best one you know if you're really gonna wear it though you know don't wear it with your nose hanging out or on your chin yeah, or I see that you know, all these kind of silly things i mean you better it's better off tonight not, not wearing, wearing it, it if you're gonna <laughs> yeah. do it that way you know and then try to avoid obviously try to avoid touching it i think that you know people say well i touch my face more when i have my mask on well, you probably don't because you can't put your finger up your nose or in your mouth yeah. when you have the mask True on. Fact. You might be touching the mask, but you're really not going to contaminate yourself from touching the outside of the mask. I mean, not unless you're in a room with a coronavirus patient doing an aerosol, aerosol generating procedure. That's the only way you're going to get like coronavirus on that mask, right? That's going to potentially you're going to infect yourself so i think that um i think that that yeah you might put your hands up on your face more but you're not you're not Actually, picking your nose yeah, you're not, not licking your fingers chewing on your nails those types of things you're not doing the things that are higher risk yeah um so so i i think that there's there is benefit from from wearing the masks and uh even if you have to readjust them or whatever it's it's okay so you think there's a potential business opportunity in in manufacturing masks, like manufacturing cool ones, and and uh, no, I mean no doubt. I think that I think they're here to stay. Matter of fact, you know, I'm a Saints fan. I just bought five different varieties of Saints masks, and it's a huge hit with my family. Everybody's picking the one they want, and you know, so it gives people an opportunity, business opportunity. Maybe it's the way you express yourself, you know, maybe, maybe there's something important to you that you want to get that mask made of. Um, you know, we did, we, we have helped Ole Miss with a few things and we got a, we got an Ole Miss mask. So I mean, it, it's cool. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for sure. So we'll start seeing J.A. Raider masks being sold in the Raider store and. Uh, I, I can't, you will. I, I can't believe Pin, Pinnacle Trust doesn't have one yet. Uh, coming. I can't coming believe the soon. podcast doesn't have uh, mind one. On yet, my, mind on, on my money masks coming, yeah, coming soon. I'm telling you. And we're going to, we're going to partner it. with a local manufacturer too, so that the money stays in Mississippi. That's right. <laughs> Man, I really appreciate your time. Uh, yeah. Neil, did yeah, you have no anything problem. else? Or? No, no. He's, I think we've pretty much touched. We wore him out. We wore him out. We wore him down. We finally got it. We, we, we finally broke him. So, uh, no, we, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. That means a lot of our people will too. Cause yeah, I, no I, I was, I was, it's been, it's been really interesting these last couple of weeks to see all the mass gatherings and you're like, so what does this mean? I mean, you know, because yeah, and we'll still see, was, right. We'll see yeah, what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Alan, uh, you'll right, be the Alan, first one to get the mind on my money mask. Awesome. I'm looking all forward right. to it. All right.
for Alan Jones, for Martin Palomo, I'm Neil McCready. That does it for this special edition of Mind on My Money podcast, which is about Pinnacle Trust. Don't forget, it's pintrust.com, P-I-N-N trust.com. Tell them that you heard about Pinnacle Trust on this podcast, and you'll get 10% off your first year's fees. Until uh, next time, take care.